you would now take out the notes sheet for tonight's uh, sermon, you'll find there the question and answer for Lord's Day 43. Just one question this week. So I'll read that, and then we'll all uh, confess the answer together. Question 112. What is God's will for you in the ninth commandment? That I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Rather, I should avoid, under penalty of God's wrath, every kind of lying and deceit as the very works of the devil. And in court and everywhere else, I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to defend and advance my neighbor's honor and reputation. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding his word tonight. Almighty God, without you, we can do nothing. So we pray that you would illumine your sacred word tonight by your Holy Spirit, that our minds may be open to receive it, our hearts taught to love it, and our wills strengthened to obey it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The ninth commandment, of course, is necessary and uh, important for people of all ages, but I think it especially rings true in our age. I think it, uh, in the age of di digital technologies, it's especially important for us to pay attention to it. Uh, digital technologies, for all their promises of uh, promoting community and expanding community, bringing people together, they actually end up encouraging a lot of bad behavior. Uh, the YouTube algorithm, for instance, uh, seems to award content that's more uh, extravagant and, and bombastic and provocative. Twitter is a way, uh, as Reverend Johnson mentioned this morning, for people to express their self-love, uh, to become micro-celebrities and act as their own publicists. By their nature, social media supports various violations of the Ninth Commandment. So as Christians, we have to be very thoughtful and deliberate about our use of them. They're not just neutral technologies. And so if we choose to use them at all, we can't allow ourselves to be caught up in the riptide of hearsay and vilification and slander. How often do we see people arrested, charged, tried, and convicted by online mobs? We can't give in to the temptation to share tweets or posts that disparage people when we could never verify the truth of those tweets or posts, no matter how much we dislike the person or group who's being disparaged. Our neighbor's not just our friend or, or the person we get along with, the person we agree with, but all human beings are our neighbors. And as we confessed just a moment ago, it's our duty as Christ's disciples to do what we can to defend and advance the reputation of our neighbor. We don't digitally destroy our enemies without a hearing, without reserve, without wariness, because we're aware of our own faults, or at least we should be. But this is just one facet of what it means to keep the ninth commandment as Christians. And so, in order to help us see what it means to control our tongues, these pesky and powerful little devices in our mouths, we'll turn to Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2. And that's where we'll be for the rest of this 
for the rest of tonight if you'd like to turn there and follow along. Paul is going to show us three ways uh, to use our tongues well and three ways uh, that we should not be using them. Three virtues and three vices having to do with our speech. Paul will direct us to truth rather than falsehood, to helpful talk rather than unwholesome talk, and to kindness rather than slander. So let's first look at Ephesians 4.25 and the priority of truth. Paul says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. And before we get into the, the commands there, it's important to pay attention to that first word, therefore, because as he always does, Paul is making sure that his audience knows that their holy behavior that he's about to command to them is a product of their new identity in Christ. He wants them to consider what he's just said as the basis for the commands he's going to give. So they have a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And because of that new self that's been graciously given to them by the Lord Jesus, they should put off falsehood as a part of putting off every part of their old way of life. Now, when Paul says falsehood, we probably think immediately of lying, um, saying something we know not to be true in order to deceive someone. And this, this is right. That's part of what falsehood means. But um, as we teach our kids, there's more than one way to lie. Uh, kids and parents, for that matter, I'm sure you've, you've done some of these other forms of falsehood and, and sort of tried to excuse yourself, saying it's not really a lie, um, smudging the truth, um, using ambiguous words, being unclear uh, on purpose so that what really happened is sort of shrouded and, and the, the true understanding uh, doesn't come forward. Or falsehood might mean telling part of the truth only so that the whole truth is lost in what you didn't say, what you left out. It's a way to sort of massage the situation in your favor to uh, twist it. And, and, and the last form of falsehood I think we should highlight is the twisting of words as our catechism mentioned as well. Twisting words in a way that, that changes their meaning. They might even be true words, but the way that you put it, the way that you frame it, the context of it makes it falsehood. This is exactly what Satan did when tempting the Lord Jesus. He quoted the scripture, and he lied by quoting scripture. Words of truth he twisted into these diabolical lies. And when we lie, when we engage in any kind of falsehood, any kind of deceit, we're imitating Satan, who's the father of lies. We're acting as if what Paul said about us isn't true, that we haven't been recreated in the righteousness of Christ. And so we're to put off all falsehood, all resemblance to our former master, Satan, and instead imitate our gracious Lord Jesus by telling the truth. Christians should be known by a pattern of honesty. That should be one of our, one of our chief characteristics. Now, that doesn't mean we always say what is true. We're not obligated to tell the whole truth to everyone we encounter. Uh, Proverbs 10.8 reminds us that a chattering fool comes to ruin. So too much talk is dangerous. Even if everything you're saying is true, if you're talking too much, that's not always a good thing. Second, it's not always the right time to speak. Silence is often best. Solomon says, Timely advice is lovely, like golden apples in a silver basket. And so, advice is good, but it has to be timely. It has to come at the right time. Untimely advice, then, we could imply from this verse, 
Even if it's true, if it's at the wrong time, it's ugly, like rotten apples in a moldy box. And so timing is important. Uh, knowing when to stop talking is important. And, and third, there are many times when privacy is needed. Discretion is important, and, and holding confidences is important. Not every person has the right to know everything. And so Christians, we are honest people. We should be marked by the truth. We should be lovers of truth, but we need to be wise about how and when we tell the truth. Another thing to mention here is that it often takes courage to speak the truth, to say something that you know is right when you also know or have a hunch that it's not going to be received very well. It takes courage. The pastor to the Hebrews tells his audience, warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. And our Lord tells us, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault. Neither of these things are are easy words to speak. They're not easy truths to communicate to our brothers and sisters. But that's what we're called to do. We're called to, to push past our discomfort and confront them about their sin in love, the spirit of brotherhood. Why? Because Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.25, we're, we're supposed to speak truthfully to our neighbor, for we're all members of one body. We're all members of Christ. We're his body. We're the church. We're a community of believers on earth representing the kingdom of God. This is why honesty is crucial for us. To live in a healthy community, there must be mutual trust. If we're going to build each other up in love, as Paul will say in just a moment, we have to at least believe that what we're saying to one another is the truth. If we engage in falsehood, we harm not just the person we're speaking directly to, but the whole body. We're all united in one body, Paul says. And so deceit, falsehood, prevents unity and it promotes division. Trust is easy to lose and difficult to recover. So let's speak the truth to one another. Let's assure each other by our words and by our actions that line up with our words that we mean the best. We don't mean to mislead or harm anyone, but we mean to build them up. We should be able to rely on one another as fellow believers. This is what it means to be the church. Of course, the reason Paul gives uh, having to do specifically with the church doesn't mean that we can lie to unbelievers. His focus here is on church life, but as I mentioned earlier, we serve the God who is truth himself. God hates lying. Proverbs reminds us of that. He detests lying lips. And so as those who are his children, we speak truth even to our enemies. And we protect their honor and reputation if it's in our power to do so. We don't overstate their, their vices and, and exaggerate what's wrong with them and, and flaunt their sins before others. We don't also understate their virtues, the good things about them. We recognize those. So we love our enemies as well by telling them the truth and by speaking the truth about them. So Paul first tells us to trade falsehood for truth. And then if you look down uh, to verses 29 and 30, you'll see the next pair that Paul lays before us. Unwholesome talk is forbidden and helpful talk is commanded. Paul is acutely aware of the power of the tongue. It can be a very effective tool uh, for good or for evil. 
That's why he wants Christians to think very carefully about the way that we speak. Our words do things. You think of Genesis 1 and how does God create the world? It's by the word of his power. Powerful word. He speaks life into existence. And as those created in the image of God, our words are powerful as well. Our words, not literally, but figuratively, figuratively and, and effectively create worlds. What we say structures our experience of reality. Language accomplishes things. Words empower and defend when they're used well, but they weaken and destroy when they're misused. James, another apostle, puts it this way, the tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. You see there the power of the tongue can be used to praise God, can be used for good, but he chiefly characterizes it by the danger it presents. It's a fire, deadly poison. And so we have to be extremely careful about how we use this little tool. Paul is saying in verse 29 that we either corrupt or build up through our speech. And we should do what we can to make sure that it's the encouragement, it's the building up that is what comes out of our mouth. So we have to avoid unwholesome talk, unwholesome or corrupting, referring to literally rotten things like fruit or fish or wood. And so the picture Paul's painting by choosing this word is that we should have a kind of Christian gag reflex to certain words, certain ways of speaking. They should disgust us in the same way that we'd be disgusted if we opened the fridge and found uh, the salmon filet that we've been saving for, for tonight, moldy and stinking, or if we accidentally bit into uh, a worm-ridden apple, should be disgusted. These kinds of words that Paul is talking about are rotten, they're corrupt, unwholesome. And so concretely, in practice, what kind of speech is Paul talking about here? Well, really, any speech that's harmful, lying and falsehood, as we've already discussed, insulting language, malicious and harsh words, even malicious and harsh tones of speaking, gossip, bad-mouthing others. Avoid any use of the tongue that puts others down, Paul is saying. And instead of those things, speak helpful words. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Give grace to one another by the way we speak. Be mindful of the emotional needs in this room. There are great anxieties facing your brothers and sisters in this church. So aim to have your words comfort them and support them. Let everything you say be for the good of the one you're saying it to. And, and by extension, as Paul said, we're all members of one body. It will build up the whole body as we speak to one another in kindness. Again, this includes telling the truth even when it's not nice, quote-unquote. Even when it's hard to say and the person that you're going to say it to, you know they're not going to want to hear it. As we heard from Hebrews in our Lord Jesus, we're called to confront one another when necessary. But only in a spirit of love, seeking to help them, not to harm them. We should never be excited to confront somebody about the sin that we see in their lives or, or the way they've sinned against us. That's a solemn event. And so, even though it's weighty, even though it's difficult and uncomfortable to do, it's, it's needed in the church. Honest correction 
is a manifestation of love, not hate. It's helpful. And so we're called to be peacemakers among one another, but, but true peace, real peace, only exists in the realm of truth. And so if there's peace between us, but it's based on uh, ignoring each other's sins, or overlooking them, uh, that's not true peace. So we, we need to let truth spoken in love smash that facade of peace, false peace created by lies, and then we can build true peace on the foundation of truth. It comes down to this. If we can't name problems among us, problems in the church, we'll never be able to find solutions to those problems. So let's build one another up in humility and in love, even when that means having the hard conversation. Why? Why speak helpful words rather than unwholesome ones? Uh, We have one reason in verse 29 and, and another in verse 30. So first, to benefit those who listen. As we've already been saying, building the body up happens through proper use of the tongue. Christ has spoken words of blessing and grace to us, declaring us righteous by his righteousness. And so we're to pass on those words of blessing and grace to one another. And then second, Paul says our unwholesome talk grieves the Holy Spirit. So rotten words not only harm the Christian community, but they offend the third person of the Trinity who dwells within us. Paul's reminding us the Spirit is a person. He's not a force. He's a person. And as a person, we should be careful not to affront him with the way that we speak. We have to be careful about this. But we should understand Paul's not threatening the Ephesians with a withdrawal of the Holy Spirit if they use their tongues sinfully. He's not threatening that the Spirit will depart from them. The Spirit doesn't leave us even when we sin. He abides in us by the promise of Christ. But when we sin, when we lie or gossip or or speak harshly, the Spirit does lament. It's not the way things should be. It's not the way the children of God should act, those who have been recreated in the righteousness of Christ. And so Christians should trade unwholesome talk for helpful talk. And then finally, in verses 31 and 32, we get our third pair of vices and virtues. Paul says, get rid of brawling and slander, and instead be kind, compassionate, and forgiving. Brawling here uh, should be understood verbally. He's talking about shouting in the context of an argument, an episode of of yelling and screaming set off by an outburst of anger. And then slander refers to any kind of malicious speech that damages someone's reputation, usually fueled by anger with that person, resentment or jealousy, and often taking the form of spiteful rumors spread behind the person's back. These rumors might be completely false from the imagination of the slanderer, or they might be based in the truth. It might be something true that you know about this person, but you're spreading it in a malicious way to damage their reputation and honor. But just because it's true doesn't make it okay. True words can devastate if they're articulated as gossip or slander. Jesus said, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Not go and point it out to everyone else and and talk about how bad this person is. So we don't want to instigate slander, but we also don't want to participate in it. We don't want to have any part 
in that kind of unwholesome speech. Slander can annihilate not just a single person's reputation, but an entire community, the whole body, it damages. And so Christians should be the people, when we talk about somebody behind their back, we should be talking about them well. We should be building them up. We should be praising them for the ways that we see the grace of God manifest in their life, not their faults that remain. So we should trade brawling and slander for kindness and compassion. After all, it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. Romans 2, that's a significant virtue, and Paul wants us to imitate that. Also, tender mercy or compassion is an attribute of God. We should imitate this as well with our compassion for one another. And so if our hearts are kind and compassionate, they won't be ruled by anger. We'll be inclined to to see the good in others and to seek good for them, to speak well to them. And if they sin against us, we'll pursue reconciliation rather than revenge. Thus, Paul's final command is to be forgiving, which might be the hardest instruction. It's easy to plead for mercy for ourselves when we sin, but it's harder to to give mercy when someone sins against us. Very difficult thing to do. Peter thought he was being exceedingly generous when he offered to forgive his brother or sister who sinned against him seven times. He thought that would impress the Lord, but Jesus says no, 77 times. In other words, there's no limit on Christian forgiveness. As often as your brother sins against you, so often must you forgive. Why? Because there's no limit to the forgiveness God has shown to us. Other people can never sin against us as much as we sin against God. The cross of Christ is our reason for forgiveness and our example of forgiveness. Now, our debts to God aren't canceled by us forgiving others. It's just the opposite. Because we are forgiven, we are enabled to forgive. How can we withhold what God has so graciously poured out upon us in his love? So Paul has given us his list of commands, trade falsehood for truth, trade unwholesome talk for helpful talk, and trade brawling and slander for kindness and compassion and forgiveness. Now, in the first two verses of the next chapter in Ephesians 5, he he sums it all up. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what we're doing when we control our tongue, when we follow the ninth commandment and everything it means, is following God's example of love. This is what Christian ethics boils down to, the two great commandments, love. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Because the God we serve is love, We are called to love one another. And not just any love, but self-sacrificial love. The decisive display of this was Jesus' death that Paul refers to here. He offered up himself as a fragrant offering to God. He laid down his life for his sheep. He laid down his life for you. The breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood was for the forgiveness of your sins and the reconciliation of God and you. Christ's sacrifice is the epitome of what it means to love, and so as those who follow Jesus and have his spirit within us, we can truly love one another. Despite our limitations and our shortcomings and our sins, 
we can walk the narrow path of love. We can speak words of love, words of life, because it is not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. We love because he loved us first. So as we, as we thought about the ninth commandment tonight in Ephesians 4 into, verse five, uh, into chapter 5, we saw many imperatives, many commands, many things we should and shouldn't do, things we should be, things we shouldn't be. But Paul was also very deliberate to remind us that these commands are grounded in the gospel. We've heard from God's word not only his exhortations, his law, to consider how our words affect our communal life as the body of Christ, to get rid of lying and falsehood and slander and and brawling, gossip, rash condemnation, deceit and word twisting. All these things are forbidden to us. But Paul also reminds us of the wonderful gospel truths that have been accomplished and applied to us by Christ and his spirit. We're joined together in one body. We're dearly loved by God. He laid down his life for us. We're forgiven. His spirit dwells within us, and we look forward to a blessed future with God. And so, brothers and sisters, since all of this is true for you, control your tongue. Use its power, its great power, to build and not to destroy. Tell the truth. Deceive no one. Treat others as God has treated you. Be kind to them. Speak words of comfort and encouragement to them. Have compassion on them. Forgive them and love them. For you have been dearly loved by your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for who you are, eternal creator and king of this world, but a God who who stoops down and relates to us in love, who have who's revealed yourself to be kind and merciful and forgiving to your undeserving creatures, who has revealed yourself to be truth itself, and who has sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to make us new creations by his sacrifice. We thank you for Christ and his work, for for joining us in one body to each other as Christ is our head. And so we ask for the Spirit to help us be like our God and Savior, to be true and not false, to be helpful and not corrupt, and to be kind and compassionate and forgiving, not brawling and slanderous. We need much help in these things, for we have no power in ourselves to obey, but we trust in you, our gracious Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.